thanks to our loyal subscribers and curious first-time listeners as well. You have found Structurally Sound, the podcast of the Institute for Homeland Security here at Sam Houston State University. I'm Grant Threat, a project manager at the Institute and one of your hosts for the podcast today. I'm joined in the studios at the Dan Rather Communications Building here on campus with by my co-hosts, Michael Asplen, the director of the Institute for Homeland Security, and Dr. Marcus Funk from the Mass Communications Department, our producer, man on the streets extraordinaire. And uh, as the new year gets rolling along here, many of us are traditionally making resolutions as we look into our annual planning. And today we're joined by Sam Houston State's own chief strategy officer, retired Major General David Glazier. Gentlemen, I'm excited to see where this year takes our show and our institute, but first, excited to see where our conversations are going today. Mike, tell us a little bit more about what we've got planned. Like for the year or for like this next 35 minutes? Well, we've got 35 minutes, so take it where you want to take it, and I'm excited. (laughs) You can tell when the script ends. (laughs) And when the impromptu begins. The best part is you all didn't hear the first round where he tried to do this, and we totally derailed him. You'll hear it at some point. Blooper reel. Coming Coming soon. At some point. (laughs) Well, uh, so uh, Marcus, the man on the street, welcome. Thanks for being here and, as always, continuing to participate with us and for Grant for the work you do to set up our speakers. And I want to introduce a good friend of mine, uh, Dave Glazier. Uh, who is joining us in the middle of, well, this is running in January, but we are actually right in the middle of graduation week. Uh, So Dave, thank you for taking time out of, you attend every single one, right? I do, Mike. Yeah. How many are there in December? Well, in December, there's only four. And if this was the spring? We would do six. So you get to listen to four keynote speakers, uh, which is good because on occasion, let's just say we get together and hang out and you give me your assessment of how well they did or didn't. We're the same. We're we're the same speaker four times. Oh, well, I thought last time it was, uh, yeah. Anyway, it can be good, can be bad. Anyway, welcome. Thank you for being here and participating with us. I really appreciate it. So we're going to jump right in. Dave, typically the format of the show is, as we introduce our guests, we want to hear what your background is and your story is. Then uh, we've got some questions just tied to how your experience and insights on critical infrastructure protection align with what we're doing as an institute. And then uh, we'll just see where it goes. And so uh, fair warning, I know you can't see the studio in here, but we've got four mics up and a control board and the three of us are always, the hosts are always taking notes and passing notes back and forth. And it can be a little distracting to the to our guests. So just please understand we're not making faces. Well, we might be or uh, making disparaging comments, but don't let that distract you. And I've been around you enough to know that won't happen. Uh, So uh, Dave, I'm just going to let you tell your story, friend. So you don't need to go back to birth, but maybe what is, what, what I know you you had a very um, successful career serving our country in the United States army. Maybe you could talk about what, that calling was for you to follow that path and just tell us your journey. Thanks, Mike. No, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And, and really, I guess it started when I was born because my dad was a fireman and my mom was a nurse. So I did take it all the way back to when I was born. But um, I, I came from a family, two large families, as a matter of fact, uh, nine and eight, my mom and dad's families, whose vast majority worked in some kind of service, either as teachers, firemen, um, prosecuting attorneys, um, 
things along that line. So that was kind of ingrained at me from an early age. Uh, when I was finishing up high school, I'm the youngest son, and uh, my brothers asked me what I want to do. I said, I want to go in the FBI. And the advice to me then was, hey, you need to go to college because you need a bachelor's degree to go in the FBI. And, and my next question was, how do I pay for that? And somebody said, join the Army. So applied to the Army. They, they paid for me to go get my undergraduate degree. I owed the Army four years before I could go into the FBI. Um, got out there on my first uh, set of assignments and absolutely fell in love with the people uh, and the mission. That led to a 36 years career where I got to do a lot of work in security-related fields, everything from in-transit security uh, across Europe for um, various uh, sensitive items to uh, defense of the homeland, to work with civil uh, def um, defense support to civil authorities. Uh, ended up in my, my last job was with is the deputy commander of Fifth uh, Army, where we partnered with Canada and Mexico for the defense of North America. Uh, and with all the federal and state agencies that uh, needed support during disasters. So there was a little thing called 9-11 that turned our nation on the on its head and where you may never have expected to serve for years overseas. What was that? You know, maybe you could talk for a minute about what how that event in time impacted you and how that changed the trajectory of your career. Yeah. No, thanks, Mike. Um I got advice early on in my career. I said, you know, don't don't chase promotions, chase things that you're you're passionate about because inherently if you're working somewhere in something you're passionate about, you're gonna do much better. So I was coming out of the twenty fifth infantry division in Hawaii and uh my assignments officer said, Hey, we got we got an assignment for you, we're sending you to Fort Leonard Wood. And I said, well, doing what? And uh, they said, well, we're going to send you to the MP school and you're going to do combat development. So it was really working with non-lethal and, and some other things. And But I, I had spent a tour or two at uh, the military police school and I wanted to do something different. And I was pretty insistent on it. And I kept harking back to, you know, the advice of my boss and do something you're passionate about. And just at that time, that was not where my passion lied. And uh, I pushed them hard enough that uh, they said um, – Look, we've got a job working anti-terrorism, uh, but you got to be there by the 4th of July. So I packed my family up, um, shipped all our stuff, did a cross-country RV trip and a rental from out of Las Vegas, two babies and two dogs. And I signed in to the Pentagon on the 4th of July as the Army's anti-terrorism officer. I uh, got spun up. Flew out on 10 September 2001 to go be the Army's rep for the Olympic Security Conference in Park City, Utah. And I got woken up the next morning on 11 September by my office calling me to tell me the World Trade Centers had been struck by two planes. Uh, that changed the trajectory of my life. It changed the trajectory of a lot of people's lives. And uh, from that day forward, I was continuously working directly for the chief and the secretary of the Army and anti-terrorism activities. Gave me opportunities that I would never have gotten and some other stuff. It really gave me opportunities that led to my ultimate advancement uh, up through brigade command and, and to, as a general officer. And so you also found yourself uh, serving overseas for quite some time, uh, specifically uh, Afghanistan. Uh, but maybe what was your – how many times did you deploy? Where did you go? And this was all post-9-11 at that point. Yeah, post-9-11. So I, I did uh, a bunch of – 
temporary duty in the Balkans. But after 9-11, we did to 2003 with the invasion of Iraq. Uh, I was in battalion command. I went back to Iraq, 15 months in brigade command. And then um, I did some work on rule of law um, with, Af- with Afghanistan. And then I went over in 2014 to serve as a senior advisor to the Ministry of Interior Affairs and our mystery advisory group working with um, police, borders, counterterrorism, uh, and everything else that they had in their portfolio. But that was that assignment was really significant, and it just happens that I am in the doctoral program for higher ed, uh, higher education here, leadership, and uh, took a class where I needed to interview somebody, a leader that I admired, and so I got an opportunity to, to interview uh, Dave. I th- I never did share the paper with you. You just read it in advance of this, so hopefully I didn't lie too much or make too much stuff up. But one of the things we talked about was uh, achievements, accomplishments. And you specifically shared with me the story of what you were required to, what the mission was in uh, Kabul, right? And could you talk, and, and the reason I bring it up is that it aligns very nicely with our work on critical infrastructure protection, because in a nutshell, and, and you'll have an opportunity here to fill in any gaps that you were tasked with helping to rebuild a country and bringing in, and I just remember in our conversation about how you had all of these Afghani departments across the nation that you needed to unite. You needed to do that under the the rules of the U.S. rules of engagement, United Nations rules of engagement. I forget how many countries you said were there. You had to navigate all of the constraints placed on you globally and then working in a, a culture in, in with a culture and a society of people who had not previously worked together, you needed to rebuild everything. So maybe you could talk about that experience and, and what those things, hopefully I didn't tell your whole story right there. Uh, no, hey, Mike, thanks. It's, it's a great intro. And, and when we sat down and talked as you were working your paper for your doctoral program, what I didn't tell you is I, I took lessons that I learned out of my multiple multiple times spent in, uh, in the Balkans and then in Iraq times two. And really what I saw there, best practices is where we made a lot of headway in partnering with the coalition and with different countries is when we had people that had exceptional emotional intelligence so they could bring people together, but also the expertise. So they immediately had the uh, technical credentials to get in and, and make the advancement. And that only took place in about 50% of the postings. So after I finished my second tour uh, as a colonel in Iraq, I wrote a paper and had it published for the U.S. Army, which is called The, uh, the, Oppor- the Opportunities in Strategic Advising. And it was really about a selection process on how you go in there and make a difference. Um, so, of course, that got into the channels, got published, and I got my orders to go to Afghanistan to, to lead the effort, which is what I was hoping because based upon a background and working with the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the U.S. Institute for Peace, I mean, that was my passion. And that, that was my assignments and anti-terrorism and everything else. So they picked me because of my technical background, and I believe because of my emotional intelligence, that to place me in the position with the Ministry of Interior Affairs. And when I got there, it's kind of what you said. So the International Security Assistance Force was a coalition of 40-plus countries um, inside the, uh, the the ministry advisory group. 
We had about nine, you know, everybody from Middle Eastern countries to European, both Western and Eastern European, Canadians, um, and then United States forces. So you had that group, and cultures are different. Um, the levels of competency, I mean, I had, in my group, I had U.S. Air Force pilots and stuff like that working in the Ministry of Interior Affairs. Great people had to be placed in certain skill sets, so it was getting to know them. And then across the board... In uh, in Afghanistan, of course, um, what you got where they set it up so they divided the power across Afghanistan. So you might have a minister who was a Pashtun, whereas the deputy minister might have been um, from a completely different ethnic group, and the person who was in charge of the police from a different ethnicity, and so on and so forth, in order to to, to balance the power. So different cultures, different perspectives, different experiences in life, and the vast majority having little to no technical background and what we were trying to get accomplished because a lot of them had served in the Army or in some other capacity, but then were placed in this job. So kind of like our political system where you have a core cadre of civil servants and then you stack a bunch of uh, political pointies on top, many of which have absolutely no background and what they do, but they have other things that they can add, like leadership skills. Um, so we had some some good leaders. We had people with a lot of influence, but not a lot of technical background. But there were people with technical backgrounds inside their stuff. So really from the standpoint of leadership importance across the board, whether it was my first deployment to Iraq, second deployment to Iraq, or that mission in, in, um, in Afghanistan was really starting out, never try to do too much in the first amount of time. So it's usually 90 days. You got to understand the environment so that you don't, you only get one chance to make a first impression. Literally, you get one chance to make a first impression. If you culturally distance half the team, you're not going to make any advances over the next 15 months or the 15 months totally that you're there. So that, that was probably the most critical piece to to get done. Uh, Then it's identifying the informal influencers. So you got this vast coalition but who do the people inside those groups, when you go into the meetings, when they talk, I mean, who do they really pay attention to? There's loud person, this person, that person, but who is the person that graduates with respect? And it's not always the person in positional power that's getting it. Because if you can identify informal influencers, whatever level, both in the coalition uh, and inside the government you're working with, then you've got a lot of opportunities to advance towards whatever the vision and the goals and objectives that have been put in front of you. If you're in a position where you're setting the vision, that's even better because um, you've got a lot of uh, influence on that. If I can just jump in for a minute. So a couple of observations based on what you said. Uh, Our last guest was Clyde Lowell, who kind of wrapped up our year and you're coming in here uh, in January. And the thing that he talked about was taking advantage of opportunities that were presented to him as always learning that being willing, not risk taking to an extent, but basically it was a high work ethic tied to people who could trust him and he made balanced decisions and then self-learning. He never actually went to college. Uh, that's his kind of his story. And he worked in healthcare, transportation, and energy, right? Did I leave anything out? I think those are the three majors for him. But the point was that he, what you're sharing is you took the sum of your experience and you're and the passion part, although we didn't ask Clyde that, it was clear that he was passionate about what he was doing. And I, reflecting on my own personal 
on my professional journey in law enforcement, to me, it was a calling to be a police officer. For you, your those two years of being initially, your motivation was to cover college. But once you got in there, this was your calling. You knew this was what you were designed, built, created for. I agree. And so I, I very much appreciate that the sum of all of that experience poured into where you were. And um, did you guys have any follow-up questions for Dave before we kind of move forward? Well, I was, I mean, as you, as you were unfolding that story, you, you hinted at the answer to the question I was going to ask is basically how, how much time are we talking about? And, um, you know, you, you talked about the first 90 days or whatever and 15 months uh, kind of in total. But, you know, I think the, you know, what was striking me there, um, you know, particularly, you know, coming from uh, the corporate world, you want to jump in, get to action, um, you know, get things done, but you absolutely cannot jump in and, and start doing things too fast. I yeah. You can't the first time. So in a perfect world, and this goes back to the article, you'd have a cadre of advisors that were kind of hand selected for both their emotional intelligence and their technical background. And you would continuously stack them back in. So Glazer would go in 2003, Glazer would go in 2006, Glazer would go in 2009, Glazer would go in 2012. So you're on some kind of a rotational basis because then you have the relationships. Then it's not, I mean, you, you've, you've got to figure out because there's people turn over just like in any job. So you got to figure that piece out, but you're not figuring out the culture. You're not figuring out the dynamics, the same bodies that you're working with and the same vision or that hasn't changed. So there's that opportunity. It's when we weren't doing that. It's when we were doing these one-year one-offs and Dave Glazer would do a year and never go back. Then it doesn't work. And uh, that, 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 that was the problem in the whole piece of the learning curve because you know, nation building is a lot faster than standing up a private business. It's, it's the education component. It's the infrastructure component. It's all those things that are long lead time that you got to get in place in order to be successful. What's fascinating to me is I spent time as a Navy civilian teaching, and I've talked about social network analysis and understanding and mapping relationships with the 95th Civil Affairs uh, Unit, which is out of um, North Carolina, Fort Bragg. And it's funny when you're describing the deployment rotations, we would be training these civil affairs teams and they were never the same. They were always, they were just replacing each other. And I specifically recall going into a little secured space where they must have had 200 hard drives. And each hard drive had information that each team had gone out and collected. And they came back and they put those hard drives in this room and never touched them. And there was, so so then it was, it was, Wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. And I remember asking at one point, hey, can you give me some of I mean, if it's not classified, I mean, I'm a secret, fine, but can we take that back to MPS, Naval Postgraduate School, and do an analysis and see who the strategic players are so that at least if the 14, if we're going, we're given all this information so we don't have to spend, waste half of our time figuring out who the important people are. We know who they are. And if that person is gone, Who's number two on that list? Who can we go to? And that's a failure. I think there's a. It's not just in the military overseas. It's it's everywhere where I've seen it repeated. Where people are unwilling to listen to the elders almost, and and instead they're like, I can do it better. And it's like, yeah, but you're starting right from square one, which can be very frustrating. Yeah, there's some good news in all of this. So. And it's Mike's point about learning from history. So we went back and we studied after about seven or eight years of a 20-year 
time frame that we were over there, um, and we created a, a Afghan hands group. But that group, which was on that three-year rotation, that only met about 20% of the requirements for the people we need to place in there. So you'd have some people, and, and they were effective, but if you got the right senior advisors who were going to utilize them to the to the rest advantage. And then inside the Army, we set up security force assistance team. We literally take very, very talented people. We put them in these bodies. That didn't that didn't happen until about 2017, 2018. And now it's up there and it's running. It's a continuous program. So they're out and about on the active duty side do, doing all this engagement globally. But really the, a huge success that we had is that in the 1990s when the wall came down and the Soviet Union uh, went through dissolution, um, there were somebody was smart enough to align U.S. state National Guard bureaus with those countries, so Romania, all these countries. And then it expanded for partnership countries around the world, so like Georgia, um, even the Bahamas. They all have these countries. So now whenever there's um, you know, that, that partners so Texas is partners with Egypt and the Czech Republic. So if you go to the Egypt and Czech Republic, people that were lieutenants and grew to colonels, they had that 20, 30-year career worth of doing interactions with that partner state and grew those relationships over time. When we pull those people out from those guard units and place them in those places, instant credibility, understanding, and they're highly effective. So we have some best practices. I don't want to say it was all bad, but there was enough that we had to learn from that we didn't learn from quickly enough that we could have pulled lessons from the past. Any other comments or questions? So I'm struck, you know, I've, I've never been in uniform. You know, I, I've lived as a, as a civilian overseas, but, but nothing like that. But I'm struck how much of what you said about collaboration and partnerships could apply domestically in different companies or even in the public sector. I'm thinking about, you know, a, a department here at SAM building a strategic plan. Like we don't have tribes in an, an ethnic sense or in a linguistic sense like you do in Afghanistan. But we definitely have different groups of people with different agendas and listening to different informal influencers. Just about everything you were saying in my head I'm thinking, okay, yeah, that applies, you know, uh, pretty universally in some interesting ways. Yeah, and I'm glad you got, that's a great segue to what my role is now as the chief strategy officer. So although if you looked at the formal role and what's written in the actual hiring description, it talks about leads the university in establishing accountability measures uh, and ensuring progress and fulfillment of strategic goals and initiatives. But below that, I have nobody that works for me. My entire mission is internal and external engagement to promote collaboration and cross-institutional uh, work. So whether it's with the community or it's with the separate colleges, uh, that's what I spend all of my time doing because the president understands the value of you know, everybody pulling together towards the same end state. And if we do that, we're going to do very good, uh, just like a crew boat, you know. One person had a stroke, the crew boat's not going straight, but it gets there really fast if we're all moving together. So, you know, good segue. Yeah, and that's not just academia. I mean, you know, I've seen that in every business organization that I've worked in. I'm even thinking in my family, you know, when we're when we're aligned, it's uh, much less static and, and getting things done is is easier, you know. But And there are all those uh, informal influencers and, and different uh, other uh, issues and, and threats that you have to 
you know, implementing your strategies. So you have um, one thing that we talk about is, is we have students who are listening to this that are getting their degrees. And um, I put this on, I asked this to Clyde um, and I'm asking it to you. So what's the prep? What's the job skill? What should they be thinking about? And, and I want to think about this in the context of we have these, you have a, a experience over closing in on 40 years with your time here that think back to this time in your life. What should students be thinking about? What should their focus be? And obviously studies and getting the grades and so forth, but they're prepping to go into the workforce. What, what, what would you tell them? What would your advice be specific to this idea of a strategic, strategic thinking? Yeah, that's, that's fair, Mike. So I can, I can tell you what, what I looked for and continue to look for to this day. Um, look, I look, I look for people that have passion. Right, so I can see you're passionate about whatever it is that that uh, I may be doing, whether I'm in health sciences or in criminal justice, or because passion's the first piece that, okay, if, if you're passionate and curious about this topic, you're going to learn multiple different ways. You're going to invest yourself in, you know, reading. You're going to invest yourself in talking to people. Um, so, passion first and foremost. Um, the second aspect, and I'm really looking for for people is. Can you work as a member of a team? I mean, do you have that ability to to get in there and 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 listen to other people's things and then participate uh, in a way that's constructive and not destructive, right? So, uh, uh, kind of that optimistic attitude that uh, and and ability to work as teamwork. And then, if you have problem solving skills on top of that, and the ability to communicate clearly, whether written or orally, those are bonuses that I'm looking for. So. The first two is that is that passion and teamwork piece, and if you clear that hurdle, and I'm working my way down across the the number of people that I'm I'm looking for, it's uh it's it's really the ability to communicate because that's going to be a huge part of what we do, um, and then I'm looking at technical skills, so I mean they're important, but not as important as the first four, because I can grow you technically. You're going to have a base from graduating, whether you're an accountant or an egg major, you're going to have a base and you might not be, have done as well in your studies as eight other people I'm interviewing. But if, if you got better passion and you got better communications, um, if you got problem solving skills, I'm going to go with you and invest in the, in the long-term aspect of technical, technical uh, amplification. My only add to that is I would always tell people in my law enforcement career, because that's kind of where I grew up, was writing is everything. When it comes to communication, typically the decision makers, that's all they're going to see is your written work, because there's very unlikely that they're going to engage with you. But that that completed, even down to the completed police report, to the completing the tow paperwork for an abandoned vehicle, to a field contact card, legible writing and capturing that. I know it sounds, might sound that ah, that's pretty ticky tack, but it's not, it builds all of those things build to that skill set that helps understand. And, and I'm, we're going to go back. I would like to talk about your work here with the strategic plan and give you an opportunity to kind of chat about where we are in that process. But I recall doing in the first master's degree, I got looking at the um, strategic initiatives of the city of Santa Barbara uh, I forget what specifically what they called them, but 
I read something about the, one of the strategic responsibilities of police department was the return of lost property. And I can recall before reading that, that uh, functional objective, that's what it was. I, I remember people grumbling about going to pick up found property. And, you know, so I kind of am on the bandwagon, grumble, grumble, grumble. And then I read it and I'm like, this is my job. <laughs> <laughs> Not only is it my job, but it is in the strategic this is the strategy, the overall strategy, the return and recovery of property. And I'm like, so who am I? I mean, why am I grumbling about this? Yeah, I'm a police officer, but if someone loses their wallet, it's my dang job. So having said that, you're in the process now of uh, formulating the strategic plan. And we talked about how you carry all those uh, skills that you've learned from a global theater into Huntsville, Texas. So did you want to talk a little bit about that process for you and maybe even a chat about mid-career, end of career, start of a new career, what that, what, that, uh, what that was like for you? But I asked you to compound question, which was unfair to a guest. So <laughs> no, I got it, Mike. Let me, let me take it from there. Um, I'm going to do it in reverse order about the piece. Look, when, you, when you're transitioning or you're, you're in a career and you're not satisfied – Look around and think, okay, what can I be passionate about? See the common theme with the Army piece and the advice I got very early on? Well, even when I was transitioning, I brought that piece back to the top is, what can I be passionate about? Because I'll do better wherever I can be passionate. And where can I be passionate and love the mission set? So I had explored a bunch of different jobs, banking, healthcare, a number of other things, was in the interview process when a friend of mine called who knew me well and knew I was transitioning and said, Dave, I think you'd be a great fit for higher education. Would you go interview for this job? Because he knew the president of the university that she needed to fill a need for a position. And he thought the skill sets that I had were a great fit for this university. So he knew I was, I was passionate about young people, right? He knew I was passionate about young people that are coming from the same demographics as soldiers, right? So it's, Kind of that top 50% that can be successful in college and are passionate enough to, to step out, kind of take some risk and do something way out of the ordinary, which is join the military and, uh, and, and go do something. That's what we get with Sam students. And he knew that and, and got me up here. Um, and he, he knew I had worked strategy for the chief of staff of the Army and, and done it in a couple of, of different other roles. So we thought that piece I'd, I'd fit in with well. Um, so that kind of led me here to this. And then when I first got here to the university, the university had a strategy and the president told me that. And, uh, she said, your job is really about executing the strategy, but I reviewed the strategy and I did that 90 day assessment. And I went, met with the colleges and everybody had a strategy, but nobody had an executable strategy, right? They didn't have the goals and objectives they were actually measuring and moving forward on. But there were, I mean, there were some great initiatives back then. We opened the medical school, which absolutely somebody took the time to really think through what are the needs of the community, how do we benefit Texas, and they took the risk to invest in that and spend wildly successful. So, I mean, they had a strategy, and, and there were there were some things that they were doing very well, but we were really looking something that across the university we could execute together. So that led to taking the time to go through this really a two year process. Uh, which we did the environmental scans, uh, really thought about what's it, what's going to change in the next decade, both demographically and 
from the standpoint of uh, culture and everything else like that and what's Sam's role in it. And we did that with a, a bunch of stakeholders. So, it's, you know, when you hear the word diversity and you're going to hear me use the word diversity, I'm talking diversity and writ large. It's not just uh, ethnicity, but it's experience levels. It's great level. So you got, you got older people, you got younger people, you got people with a wide variety of, of job experiences. You've got uh, community organizers, you've got industrialists, you got, you get all these different pieces and parts. So for us, it was taking all those parts and bringing in alumni, bringing in students, uh, bringing in community leaders, faculty, and staff. That was our stakeholder group, and you had to fit across that wide, diversified demographic. I didn't want five people out of CJ or five people out of COSET. I wanted people out of every college that were going to participate in this, and I got 100% support across the board. Remember, we talked this, and we, and we took our time, and we built the framework. What's the framework? It's the mission, the mission, and the values, right? So it's really just restating those. But if you can't read the mission and say, oh, yeah, that's Sam Houston State University, then that's not our mission statement. So the stakeholders wrote that. It says Sam Houston State University. The values are Sam Houston State University's values. Then you write the vision statement. When you write the vision statement of who do you – so the mission, who we are, vision statements, who do we want to be in a decade – that's the vision statement. So we want to be the best value in higher education and the top regional university in the state of Texas. Those are two clear goals inside of that. And then there's some methodology on how we're going to get there by being agile and innovative and, and other things. But that's what direct, got us to our four priorities. And I'm going to summarize the priorities just very succinctly. So priority number one, student success in academic excellence. Okay, no surprise there, right? But that's what our mission is. Our mission is not research. It's student success and academic excellence. That is what this university is about. Number two was excellence, and that's really about customer service. What are all those things that we're going to do? You know, we need to be excellent at them so that not only can we enroll students here, but we can retain students here. We can graduate students here. Nobody should come to Sam Houston State University and leave with nothing but debt whether it's a credential, certificates, a degree, all of those things. Carry those skill sets and go out and be very successful. Hey, we're doing pretty good. The last three years, we have been number one or number two in the state of Texas for social mobility of our students. So that's a huge aspect of that. And we've been in the top 15% nationally all three years. So we're making huge progress inside of that. Um, So that's one and two. Three was about uh, elevating the reputation of Sam Houston State because all I heard was we're the best-kept secret in the state of Texas. Well, we don't want to be the best-kept secret. We want people to have understand there's an opportunity to come here, and it can make a, a, a difference in your life. Um, and the last piece is really about community partnerships and partnering and community engagement because that's who we are. And programs we're going to build are about really the motto, the measure of life is a service. How do we serve our community? So we really focus on the majority of our students. It's 95% come from about 15 counties, which are within 70 miles of Huntsville. I'll say that again. 95% of our students come within, come here from within 70 miles. Now, do we want to expand that out? Absolutely, because we think we have a lot to offer. But we're focused on building those programs for the community. So built the, the medical school. We, we looked at what are the adjustments we can make in CJ. We stood up the Institute for Homeland Security of all the critical infrastructure, the number one city in the world for international trade is Houston, right? So how do we make Houston 
safe and secure to do that? Well, we go to the legislature and we ask for the money to do the research and the partnering to, to make that happen. So that's what the whole strategic plan is about. That is what we're we're trying to accomplish here. That's how we built the goals that support it. And now we're focused. We got 20 goals supporting those four strategic priorities. But you can't do all 20 at the same time. So we got four focus areas. We got to enroll the students we need for a growing population because the population of Texas is expected to increase by 15 million over the next 30 years. Okay. A good portion of that is up the I 45 corridor between Houston and Dallas Fort Worth. So, how do we make sure that we are postured to do that? So, have the enrollment. It's retention. We want those people that come here to stay here, to finish here, to get what they can out of this and go out and be successful, right? It's that completion aspect, the graduation, getting those certificates, getting those credentials, getting those degrees. And it is agility. And it's not academic agility. It's agility in all we do in a rapidly transforming world in order to meet those needs. So that's what we're focused on. That's what we're doing inside the strategy across the, across the university. Feel like standing up and screaming, "Amen!" Amen! <laughs> uh, screaming, "Eat them up, cats!" So I'm going to change gears for a minute. Okay. Um, your background in understanding security threats in critical infrastructure. So uh, I'm turning you over to Grant. We we're not framing this as lightning rounds. We tried this in the last podcast. It didn't work out Crashed well. And burned. Yeah. Pretty much, uh, we told Clyde. Clyde Lowell wrote a um, nuggets of leadership wisdom or a nuggets of nuggets of wisdom. I forget how he phrased it, but he had five, and I said he gets two minutes for each. And I think we got through the first one in about five minutes. So what I want to do is have um, and and for the audience, we always have a pre meet with our folks. So it's not like we're catching them off guard. They know it's coming, and we're not surprising you here, sir. So. I said I want to get beat up afterwards. Uh, so, Grant, I'll turn it over to you. But I, so, nevertheless, yeah, in, in our pre-meeting, we we talked a little bit about some security threats that are facing critical infrastructure for today. And that's, you know, apropos for this podcast and, and our conversation. And so I, we'd love to hear your perspective on um, some of the ones we talked about. Uh, maybe we can just start with drones and, uh, you know, kind of how – that technology is growing and emerging and then also, you know, becoming a threat um, for critical infrastructure in particular. Great. Grant, so before we start on that and talk a little bit about drones, let me talk a little bit about my background so people can understand that uh, I've got a little bit of experience uh, in in this piece. So about my fourth year of service, uh, the Army gave me an opportunity to do in-transit security uh, across Europe for all the classified sensitive uh, items, whether it was equipment or munitions or, or, or personnel or, or currencies, things along those lines that, that we needed to, to do. So that's really started. So this is the 19, right around 1990. So it's been, it was a while ago. Then I hear a series of jobs over, over the next 36 years of my career, which really focused on that, whether it was in the planning or, or execution of operations whether it was in the work with the advisory group to make sure that the hydroelectric dams and the other major infrastructure projects that we were doing to provide power to Afghanistan, communications to Afghanistan were secure and, and able to operate. Uh, to my last job with Fifth Army, which is U.S. Army North, which does the land component security partnering operations with FEMA, the federal agencies, and the states 
to make sure that we can operate during times of conflict. So it's protection against crim- criminal organizations, critical infrastructure. It's criminal. It's uh, against nation states and it's against terrorists. So it's the it's the planning and programming to to make sure that that we're doing there. So um, a lot of things that we did during that time, we we really did two things: is what's on the horizon, what are those emerging threats. Drones is, is a big piece of that because the technology has gone from drones have been around forever. I mean, even back in World War II, they had, they had drones of, of various sorts that they used, but the technology is rapidly getting so much more capable and you can combine it with artificial intelligence and you don't, you don't need GPS and you can do facial recognition and, and the high uh, resolution cameras that are pretty awesome. It's pretty impressive. Infrared, uh, spectral analysis. I mean, we did drones in the 1990s doing uh, drug support operations. So you could you'd take a spectral analysis and you could tell where the pot fields were under the triple canopy in the jungles. And, and you can then send your DEA agents in there to, to get them. So. Because they give off their different heat signature, which makes it really easy for any interdiction team to actually find the marijuana because it's actually a lighter green, apparently. According to the, uh, so, so there was a lot of good stuff. So you know, when I look at the newer technologies and where we're investing, and I think they're pretty much the, some of the top ones now, it really came back to cyber drones and artificial intelligence. But still, and, and sometimes people lose track of that as they're, as they're chasing these um, emergent threats, is, is the continuous direct action and insider threat aspects. So those five kind of ate up a lo- the vast majority of my time uh, in my last job as we were working with the states on critical infrastructure security, and it, it was energy, it was transportation, it was healthcare. Those were kind of the major ones, but really the energy and transportation were the top two. If you lose the energy, you lose a lot of other things to include banking, to include healthcare. Um, so when you look at the energy and transportation, those were the top two, and then there's lots of spinoffs after that. Communications is, is up there. There's lots of alternative ways that you can rapidly stand up communications networks, and we're pretty practiced on that because of disasters, but the energy and transportation piece are a lot harder. Um, so you asked me about drones. So the, the drone piece, uh, we've been countering that for a long time. Um, there are technical solutions uh, that get worked because there's money in defeating those kind of threats. But the hardest parts that we had with the drones, right, and it didn't matter if it was working with prisons or working with critical infrastructure or working with military bases, which could be critical infrastructure, but sometimes not classified, is the policy and the laws didn't support the activities to prevent the activities that were taking place. That was the biggest part. So when we look at kind of those things that you have to do with, uh, with all these emergent threats, whether it's cybers or drones or other things, at the lowest levels, you know, if you're working in the energy field, it doesn't matter if you're working for BP or Exxon or Gordy Oil or a number of these other companies, and you're looking to protect your your networks and your pipelines and your ocean terminals and all that other stuff, you've got to get together as a group, write the policies and propose laws that are going to give you the ability to protect yourself, not before these attacks take place, right? You can protect your airspace. You can give yourself standoff. You can do all these different things. You can prevent types of uh, equipment such, uh, you know, the military banned DJI produced drones from China. 
So, and there's a reason for that, you know, and we don't do those anymore and neither should the commercial sector if they knew some of the stuff that was going on with those. So, so that's my thoughts on drones. Gotcha. So you, you mentioned uh, cybersecurity and AI as well. Maybe we could talk ab- about uh, those threats just for a minute. I, I know AI uh, gets a lot of uh, popular press uh, these days. Yeah. Well, AI is a nation state race to the top. So if you think back to the 1940s, um, of course, there was a, ra- a race for nuclear uh, weapon systems. And that was the Manhattan Project. And if you really looked across the board right now at all the major nation states, they're all investing at the Manhattan Project level in developing artificial intelligence because it is a game changer in, in what's taking place out there. Um, I suspect some of you guys and gals out there use chat GPT. I mean, that's at the very lowest level of what those things uh, can be used for, but they're, they're much can be much more sophisticated than that. It's rapidly taking place. Um, so spoofing from the standpoint of artificial intelligence, there are so many different ways to, to spoof. You can use AI to, to spoof and, and, and uh, corrupt database sets for global shipping. So it, that's in combination with cyber. Cyber gets you the entry. AI gives you the, the data to feed. So it's very hard to detect, but does just enough that it screws up everything. 2019, that happened to Maersk, which is a worldwide shipping company. Um, so that was a, a, a huge disruption. It cost billions of dollars. Kind of flew behind the level, but um, you, you probably noticed it in some increased prices slightly after that as they had to go back and, and restore and, and redo systems and, uh, and and bring stuff back online. So AI uh, is rapidly expanding, so we've got to we got to pay attention to that. And they're trying to get the the governance, the policy, and the laws in place, but it's trailing behind. And then there's the big ethics concern and competition against uh, those that we have to get after. We had um one of our trusted partners shared with me a story about successfully stopping a cyber attack, and um let people know about it only to have that be then repeated after being told uh, I'm obviously being careful how I'm characterizing this whole thing, but then a very public announcement that was mischaracterized as this entity was uh, the announcement was uh, were subject to a cyber attack, which was not true. They prevented a cyber attack. They actually had a day one, they saw the initial, their team saw the initial intrusion attempt and they were ready when they came back and captured whatever this thing was and were able to deconstruct it and get it out to everybody and then fast forward. So when I heard that story and all the details around it, I asked, hey, could we do a case study on this? Because this is a great example of private industry and public partnerships not working. And if we have this desire um, and then I'm kind of going along with it, it falls under this AI and under the radar. And the, the comment was no, because every time you bring it up, it impacts our business. So even when you think about our people willing to talk about uh, vulnerabilities in terms of cyber, the short answer at the, at least on the industry side is no, we don't want to talk about it because, and I'll, and it's not target. So I'll talk about target. We're aware of that. This goes back five years maybe now where it took over the system, a cyber attack shut them down. 
And every time you bring that up, people remember that. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? It just occurred to me that back in our day, and I'm pointing to Dave and I because we're about the same age, it was the the uh, the bad pe- the rat in the in a fast food restaurant's fryer, and that you know had a huge impact on their business. Now it's cyber. It's taken a new turn, as you know, when you think about. So if you're engaged, and we had our in our most recent. We had our thought leaders conference where we talked about what are the threats of a non-kinetic war with a third part, third uh, a nation state. And just think about what you described, Dave, and what I described is that if you can just – it doesn't take much to disrupt, at least on the cyber front, to disrupt industry, to disrupt trade, to disrupt all those things. So, so Mike, I, you bring up a very good point, and let, let me highlight this. And this is – if you're involved in critical infrastructure and you're going to – be passionate about this field and get into it. You've got to be able to think from the tactical level to the strategic level inside your industry. So let me just talk a little little bit about that because that's where you started. So the tactical level, right, you're the person that's on the ground working inside your organization to make sure that you're doing the assessments and and surveys to scan for vulnerabilities and, and, and to think forward. At the sector-specific level, You've got to work to build those relationships so that you're getting advanced notice of, of, uh, of different things that are, that are taking place inside of your sectors uh, and, and what's taking place, in, you know, whether it's regulatory, risk assessments, but also training and exercises because of the turnover in, inside that. But the piece you just alluded to, Mike, the whole piece on information sharing, that's, you can do that stuff, but if, you really want, if we really want to get it done well, there's got to be those national level bodies that are that are doing that, that are advocating for both the, the policy and the law changes. But it's about the information sharing, and inside that information sharing, there's a tight set of rules that you will report these incidents, and you will, and it will be made non-attributional, so they scrub out all the ide- the identity of the organizations that are taking place, because the threats remain the same, and the methods remain the same, but you don't want either attribute it to an industry because of the reputational risk or to who we think it is because that's a job for a law enforcement organization that, that's going to prevent, going to build the case for us to to take down that, that entity. That is a critical thing. That There's a number of those organizations that are out there, but you got to participate from the organizational level all the way to the national level. So that, that's a huge piece of doing critical infrastructure security and that sort of amazes me of the buildup of IHS is this uh, is creating trust amongst partners. And we're positioned, uh, we're trying to position ourselves to be that mediator between government and private industry, which is a, a term I use time and grind. It's time grinding, you know, time together, grinding out details and building trust and confidence. Well, we're at the 50 minute mark at this point. And as usual, we run well past what we were, uh, you know, we, we have a plan and we never do follow the plan. Plus, I don't think this, was, this we were that hard on you. You weren't. Actually, it was very cordial. <laughs> I was a little disappointed. <laughs> this is Maybe why we next need, time. Yeah, absolutely coming back. So, um, uh, Grant, did you have any, well, first of all, any final comments uh, thank you for being here with us today. I appreciate you taking out taking I, I the time. Do, out. I do have a final comment. So I'm, I'm very so this this organization for the, the honest, I mean, it's only been around really for two years, right? Two years, twenty months. I was just figuring that out, and, and probably not even that long when you think about 
standing the organization up and actually getting it to the point where you had people that were hired. I mean, I think it was February and March until you know, we started in October officially. Of hired our first hire. Didn't get our second hire until January. Then we got another hire in March. So it's pretty exciting to see the momentum and the work that you're doing. And I will highlight that the value of the organization is not just in the research. It's in the collaboration and connecting all these, both the government and the private industries together to, to build the relationships so we can prevent the problems, but also respond and recover. And I see that happening at all the um, different forums that take place across the Institute for Homeland Security. And that's the real value of the organization. If you ask me, it's priceless. All right. Thank you for that. Uh any last words, Marcus? I no. I just appreciate you coming here. I think a lot of these are ongoing. You said no, then you started talking. I know. Yeah. Do you have some last words? <laughs> yes. It, yes. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, yes. So I think a lot of these are ongoing conversations. You know, thinking about drones. You know, it wasn't that long ago that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals handed down some uh, some judgments on some of the Texas laws about drones related to critical infrastructure and sort of a nuanced ruling. I don't want to get into it. It's probably headed for the Supreme Court sooner or later. But the conversation's not going away. It's not going away regarding AI or cybersecurity or anything. And, you know, I look at a lot of these as opportunities, you know, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, because I'm coming from a different perspective. It's not all defense as a journalist. It's also, hey, how can I employ this? How can I use this? And I think finding middle ground on a from a legal framework is going to take those same skills you were talking about earlier. And I think that's it's exciting because the technology is always emerging and always evolving. But it's also tricky because you can see all the different ways that the technology can be abused. So, I agree. Grant. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I agree. Grant. Good point. No, just as I was listening to Marcus just now, is making me think of the uh, drones and and robots in security uh, course that we've developed. We're getting ready to um, showcase actually next. Well. By the time this airs, it won't be next week, but in uh, late December, we'll be down in Brownsville to talk about it. But the but the the point of the course is um, is making that business case for employing new technology in security and how uh, in in security management that can become an integral part of the bottom line for a business organization and um, you know just some of the synergies there. But I I love this conversation, this talking about um, tactical to strategic thinking. Um, you know, really, that's that's uh, it's a lot to digest and uh, really good stuff. Thank you for being with us today, and uh, I, I, that's all. That's um, all. That's how you're going to end the podcast. I'm looking at your signal to go take oh, us out. Gotcha. So and, here at IHS, uh, we are disruptive <laughs> but, but helpful. helpful. <laughs> all right, everybody, have, have a, a great day. yeah, have a great week. Thank you. Bye bye. Structurally Sound is the podcast for the Institute for Homeland Security at Sam Houston State University. It is supported by the College of Criminal Justice and the Mass Communication Department. Our hosts are Michael Asplund, Grant Threet, and Marcus Funk, who also produces and edits the show. Our music was written by Kevin Clifton, and the artwork was created by the Idea Factory, part of the Department of Art at Sam Houston State. Additional support comes from Shannon Lane, Rose Cater, Charles Henson's and enthusiastic bearcats everywhere.